0: Welcome to this edition of the Systematic
1: Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Moritz Sieben, and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where we do our best to bring you into the world of rules based investing by sharing our observations and hard lessons learned over the last few decades, hoping that you can avoid making some of the mistakes that we did. Jerry Moritz, good morning, good afternoon. Not long since we were together in Miami. Now we're back in our respective homes.
2: Uh, how are you doing? Doing well. Uh, had a short flight back to Tampa, but I trust you guys made it back home okay.
3: Yeah, doing well. Bit of a longer flight. Uh, got back here about two or three hours ago, but um, all went smoothly. So, that's was very nice to see you.
1: Absolutely. Good stuff and, and really nice to uh, catch up in person last uh, week. Of course, as, as, as I would say often happens nowadays when we... Do get together for these conferences. Um, there always seems to be something interesting happening uh, in the markets, uh, and of course we we're recording just as the month of January uh, finished. So maybe we can look at it as a in a little bit of a bigger picture, not just for the last week, but for the last month. And of course we did have a solid start to to uh, 2020. Um, lots of trends continued um, on you know in their path. Um, But then, of course, we got hit by this coronavirus and uh, kind of all bets uh, were off in terms of market trends. Um, And I think, you know, for the past 10 days or so, but certainly this week in particular, Many of the markets uh, that we trade were dealt uh, a bit of a blow in in, in terms of their uh, trends. Equities, energies uh, springs to mind, Um, but even some of the commodities, not necessarily related to coronavirus, but uh, I did notice that coffee was down 22% in January, uh, for example. Um, But as markets closed on Friday, um, it was pretty clear that investors preferred safety in fixed income markets, where... Treasury yields just uh, dived uh, pretty low. Uh, I think the two-year went down to 132, which is the lowest level we've seen in three years. And the 10-year is down to 151, not far from its low. And gold, uh, of course, was another favorite of uh, from investors uh, at the expense of the more risk-on markets. So... Um, I know you just came back, Moritz. Maybe yesterday uh, in sunny Miami uh, or maybe cloudy Miami. You had time to uh, look a little bit on was going on in your portfolio while you were spending time in
3: in Florida. And and that's exactly how I did it. And what I did uh, yesterday morning in Miami because it was overcast and it started to rain. So I ran my portfolio and looked at the numbers and you know doing the thing and um, found out that I lost a percent. Uh, close to a percent last week. Um, but I finished the month up uh, about three and a half percent still. so I'm not not complaining about that, but last week saw some relatively large moves that we hadn't seen in a while. Um, obviously lost money from being long equities um, in China, in the. US, in Russia, um, made money on the US bonds, made money on being short copper uh, along the euro dollar and short cotton. But um, you know, it's been a back and forth, so minus one percent.
1: Yeah. Which uh, well for the week, but still up for the month, which is pretty good. We were uh, not quite uh, as p- profitable as you. We were more in the f- in the in the flat to slightly up camp uh, at the end of play on Friday, um, and but even though you know it was kind of a, a a very flattish month at the end of the day. Of course, intra month um, gave back some of the uh, open equity, and when you look at the market breakdown on our side, certainly there was quite a lot of. Uh, Uh, diversification in terms of returns. Uh, It wasn't a quiet month when we look at individual markets, but of course equities on our side as well were uh, generally down. Um, Energies as well. Some of the energies uh, down more than others. Uh, Very few uh, positive um, performance from energy, but net gas was one of them. Um, interestingly enough, our best market last week, or oh, sorry, last month, was the lean Hawks. So nice to see that some of the smaller markets uh, are participating. But of course, the clear winner in terms of that was also fixed income on our side. Not surprising and. And we'll see how that all plays out, whether this is again one of those two or three week corrections um, and then investors find come comes comes back and 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 the trends find their foot again. so uh, be interesting to see. Um, but since equities did play a central role in January, um, Jerry, it's always interesting to see whether some of the individual equities also uh, saw some interesting moves. So um, how was your month week?
2: Uh, probably fared a little bit better than the S&P. I think those big stocks got um, hit a little bit more, especially Friday. Um, I'm lucky enough, you know, I don't like feel the need to trade uh, a little over 30, so 30 individual stocks. So, uh, and it's just a portfolio built on weirdness, crazy names, stocks. You know, that are not normal or have different things going on, uh, but with liquidity, you know, and, uh, you know, Certainly, some most of them household names, but I, I was fortunate enough to get a hold of Tesla, and I think that's you know bucked the trend of last week. So I think that was even up on Friday. Um, I did have a, at least one uh, stock that's heavily tied to China, like it does business in China. Or it might be China-based. Um, they got pretty crushed <laughs> <laughs> one day. The first sell, the first day the sell-off came. Uh, so yeah, you know it's. Um, Interesting because I've said before you you can build these portfolios looking at lots of data, which you should look at. You know, what is a lot of data? Well, certainly more than a few weeks, and then you put it together and you have this diversification, whether it's stocks or commodities or bonds and and currencies. And then you could get all these sectors are gonna get hit, um and your diversification kinda goes away and you know, so the only defense really is uh, hoping that uh, you had some longs and shorts in some different positions. So um, so when it, they do all get hit, you know, at least uh, you're making money on some and losing on the others. But um, and then maybe everything goes back to the situation before where there was uh, less correlation, but we just never know. Um, you just do the best you can, and I think the correlation thing is difficult to figure out. There is no sure. perfect answer. No, no.
1: Maybe before we jump into uh, the uh, kind of social media tweets, uh, topics that we always do... um I know we met in Miami, but of course, uh, Moritz, uh, you also spent a few days at the conference uh, the last few days. I mean, were there any interesting things you took away from the conference other than, of course, the great pri- privilege we both had in running into Wayne, you know, in person? Now he's not just a Twitter friend, now he's a, a real friend. So, uh, But anything else you think of when you think back on over the last uh, 36 hours or so? Yeah,
3: Wayne was a highlight, as as was meeting you and, and everything. So that was a lot of fun. But um, in terms of the conference, I was there looking at, um, specifically at at firms trading commodities and kind of like geographical arbitrage strategies in a systematic way in those markets. And, and also to firms who have a physical merchant's business um, in the commodity space that potentially allows them to get different signals um, than we do. Case in point, palladium. So I spoke to a firm and they were saying, look, we're running warehouses. And uh, it became clear to us two years ago that it was difficult to get palladium out of any warehouse. So clearly there was a shortage and they built up a long position. Palladium started to trend after that. But, you know, we as trend followers, we we get onto these things a bit later then. Um, so this, this is interesting. Um, I spoke to a couple of uh, people in the cta or like say trend following um space like like us who were there um they said yeah there's there's interest by people but it wasn't overwhelming it's not like you know that you know uh clients were queuing in in a in a mile long line to speak to trend following ctas
1: yeah no i mean it is true i mean and also i guess uh Certainly the, the 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 latter conference we attended, uh, the context one, CTAs, even though it started out as a CTA conference, I would say CTAs has been completely dwarfed by all the other Uh, conference, uh, not strategies, I mean, and uh, what was interesting from the first conference of the week, which was the MFA conference, the Managed Funds Association, I should say, um, where Prequin did a presentation about flows uh, in 2019 and, and where they suspect flows will come in 2020. I mean there's no doubt right now everybody loves private equity and 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 and, and most of the strategies are kind of um, you know not that uh, interesting in terms of flows but of course we all know that this changes once we get a decent uh, bear market in, in in equities and we see that these strategies do do you know do have their weaknesses uh and um, but as as long as the S and P and other equity markets continue to go up, uh, those are the strategies
3: that people gravitate to. Um, that's that's clear. That's interesting. I think so too. I mean, I remember the conference from its uh, old Alpha Metrics days when it was very CTA focused, and maybe there were like three hundred people there or something like that. Um, now it's two and a half thousand and you have all sorts of trading firms from structured credit to private equity to long short equity to long only i mean yada yada everybody seems to be there and and out of curiosity I had um a sit down and a talk with you know two firms from the kind of like structured credit side and um, and Definitely, they are getting a lot of attention and money. So, it seems to be what we're saying like, you know, investors chasing returns and structural credit looks great because it produces a relatively, you know, the last couple of years, it has produced phenomenal low volatility excess returns uh, compared to the alternative, treasury bonds or something like that, right? And, uh, but they, it, it's presented in a way like, come on, you, you, you want, you want our investment anyway so we're charging three and thirty and there's like a preferred return of that and just uh, if you don't if you don't want to invest at least 100 million then please step aside somebody else is in the line who wants to do it <laughs> so very different to us yeah but although the,
1: i will say there's one theme
3: that when you talk
1: about that and and uh, you know that that does spring to mind and that is i think a lot of these investors What they end up doing is they end up uh, gravitating towards uh, less liquid strategies, right? Structured credit, private equity, things like that, which... Again, we know that you know once uh, when when markets uh, really get into trouble, I mean one of the things you you need is is liquidity. Um, and we just have haven't had that need for for quite a while now. but um it's a little bit of I think it's a little bit of a shame to see uh, flows like that that are relatively short term uh, in that sense because I think people will end up regretting it, but but that's the way it is. All right. I see you've already been on Twitter today a couple of times, Jerry. So, um,
2: well, I just wanted to make a comment as well on the conference. And, uh, I think it's, um, just, uh, would encourage you know, I, I always, uh, I'm amazed that I don't go to these conferences very often. And then when I do go, I'm amazed that, that uh, how much fun they are. And I think, uh, there's a big benefit to going and meeting with people and just listening and hearing what's going on and learning some stuff. And so I just had few meetings and random meetings with friends and colleagues, and I was learning a lot of stuff You know that was going to help me, what was going on in different markets or <clears throat> the asset raising side. So I think it's always worthwhile just to spend a little bit of time with people, have dinners and lunches and breakfast and meetings where you can keep up with what's going on with lots of different people around the world. Um, so I think they're sort of beneficial to go. We had a good yeah. we had a fun time at the basketball game. Thanks to Andrew for that. Oh, yeah. It was big shout out. Yeah. Um, so, meeting him and reacquainting with uh, old friends as well. A lot of fun. Yes.
1: Yes. Let's not forget that was actually a really fun evening we all had together there. And actually, I noticed that the 40 uh, in, 20 out portfolio that he runs uh, had a pretty strong month. So, uh, yeah, people should check that out for sure. Let's jump into um, the, today's agenda. Let's talk about some of the topics that you um, uh, brought up in, in your Twitter feed. And then we've got uh, quite a few questions. I don't know if we're going to get to all of them today. We're going to try.
2: Um, but there's quite a few. So um, let's, let's get going. Good. Good. Uh, well, my most popular tweet this week, uh, once again, old reliable Larry Height, uh red meat for the trend followers. He just has a way of stringing words together, and uh, people like it, and I like it. Uh, so he goes, he goes on to say, I don't need a million charts or a thousand pieces of fundamental data to tell me that Microsoft's cloud business is booming. The trend is telling me. It's telling you too. And I think, uh, you know, that, I think that last sentence. It's telling you too. <laughs> just made me laugh because, you know, I appreciate, um, you know, um, him making it personal to me, like, what are you going to do with this? And why aren't you paying attention to it? And don't deny this. And so I like that sort of made it for me, uh, and a lot of my Twitter followers, um, but just, you know, really encouraging. And, um, and I think I tweeted something like, you know, um, you know, not only is it telling us that, and we're following these trends, but there's nothing better that's going to get you in the right position than just following that trend. There's no other fundamental or evaluation or anything. I mean, in, in my opinion, you know, I know that machine learning and things like that. And, uh, there's just, you know, can we figure, you know, it's just like, can we figure, can we just please try to figure out something that gets us in before that breakout? Oh my gosh, I have to wait for the breakout. Can I just buy the low with my machine learning? It'll just make me so much better. So, okay, whatever. But, um, I think uh, that's pretty interesting. You know, Larry's just uh, an infinite wisdom, and this book he wrote is has, has so much good stuff in it.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think the the comment you mentioned this thing where he says it, and it's telling you too. I mean, I think it goes back to the to the point we're trying to make uh, in, in 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 many different ways. But at the end of the day, it's the same point, and that is, you know, the evidence is is pretty clear. Um, yet a lot of people uh, want to ignore it, and so. Uh, I, I like kind of this uh, turning it around a little bit um, where where essentially you, you ask people, I mean, what, what's their assumption? What, what assumptions do they use in order to get to the conclusion that you shouldn't have any trend following in, in, in your portfolio? Um, and, and I would love to hear their response because as we all know, there's never been a white paper written that does not come to the conclusion that trend following or managed futures, whatever we call it, should be part of uh, any anyone's portfolio. So, um, so yeah, uh, the trend is definitely telling everyone
3: uh, what to do. I, I, I read the book um, between Christmas and, and New Year's Eve, I think, and enjoyed it. Um, Larry has, I've mentioned that before, he has the talent, a rare talent and very, very appreciated talent of using simple words and simple sentences to describe trend following and its benefits in a very clear and funny way. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, he does. He's great in person. You know, another, um, so back to Morgan Housel, he's just put so much good stuff out there that I like to read. On his website, I've got a link to um, an article with uh, Tim Ferriss, who I guess is um, pretty interesting as well. I've read a few things of his, and he tweeted something that really, I mean, this is just like me, you know. And I sent this out to some friends of mine and they're like, what are you sending me? Is this like a self-help thing? I'm like, yeah, I guess. But I really, this is just me I, for some, I just, it's really hit home with me. And this is the type of person I am. And I was like, oh, wow, this guy's figured me out. But, uh, here's the quote. It's, uh, I'm not good at moderation. I'm better with fasting than caloric restriction. No dessert is a lot easier for me than some dessert. I thrive with loving constraints, strict binary rules that remove all deliberation and protect me from my lesser self. I'm going. Oh my gosh! I love that part. Um, loving constraints. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, uh, you know, lost a lot of weight, and I've gone through the years. You know, I I've worked. I lost like seventy pounds in 1999, and getting older, and I'm always kind of going through these. Okay, I got to lose like five or ten pounds, to get back down to my. Um, <clears throat> Prime, you know, fighting condition and working out and everything. And uh, that's the only thing that works for me, you know, just is this tremendous calorie restriction. And uh, so I'm like, oh, gosh, he got me on that one as well. And then with the trading and stuff, I'm always trying to be so strict, at least argue for the strict interpretation and these rules, you know, the Ten Commandments of Trading. And so I just – my brain just works this way where I – yeah, I need to protect myself from my lesser self, or guess. But maybe something a little bit different than that. But that's that's good enough, I guess. Maybe there is a lesser me that um, that makes it me desire these living rules. What are your thoughts,
3: Moritz? I like it. I just find that those type of rules uh, are, at least for me, much more difficult to obey than the trading financial rules, which I can backtest in a spreadsheet and kind of like say, "Oh, here's a signal. I need to follow that signal, and I'll do it." Saying no to the ice cream, um, you know, it's kind of like, oh, well, I can have one because it doesn't really hurt. You don't see it immediately as a financial loss. It may, you know, one ice cream doesn't show up on your hips, but if you do it every day, then it does. So, um, I guess a hard rule, like uh, like Jerry's saying, is 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 the better thing to do.
1: Interestingly enough, so I was watching on the plane home uh, from Miami, I was watching this. Um uh, documentary on, on Netflix uh, called The Game Changers which I think is about why you want to be vegan uh, and not eat meat and stuff like that and, and and all the positives and they have different experts in to talk about these things but I, I think actually if I didn't maybe I was a bit uh, dozy when I saw the, the, the movie but I think actually what they say is that restricting people 100% is not necessarily a good idea because it's like saying to you the only thing you're not allowed to think of right now is a white elephant. And everyone is going to sit there and think of a white elephant, right? So if you say you're not allowed to eat ice cream, that is not necessarily as good as saying, okay, but just eat one every two weeks. Um, at least that was their kind of take on it, that if you forbid something 100%, people are going to be more
3: focused on it. Um but by I kind of yeah I think it depends on what you want to achieve if if you say you know I, you, you have I mean let's just stay on the topic of of weight I mean if if you have you're you're within the range of your target weight and then I guess everything is fine in moderation exercise and you know I allow myself an ice cream no problem with that but if if I had you know um, a target of losing 20 or 30 pounds then I don't, I don't think this works with, oh, I'm going to allow myself an ice cream. Then this is kind of like, if I really want to do this, if I want to be 20 pounds less in, say, two months' time, then it must be tough and hard rules. And it's exercise, and no, you just don't eat this. Period. And other things, you don't eat it. <laughs> Done. And you have to fight through it and obey by these rules. Um, and, you know, I guess that's the only way then.
1: But of course, in trading, of course, we, we are very black and white, right? I mean, we are systematic traders, so we don't do discretionary trading, right? That—that's kind of how we interpret it. And uh, some people, of course, will will blend these things. Um, so, uh, but I, I mean, I, I I agree with you, Morris uh, and, and and Jerry, but uh, and and maybe it's a little bit different than. Uh, what we do in our, our personal but when it comes to trading, I think you're either systematically or you're not. I mean, the whole point, I mean, I guess the other thing is, if you do any discretionary trading, or, or, you know, or things that is not in your system... You could argue that the whole backtest uh, that you might yeah. rely on is. I think worthless.
3: it's a different, a little bit of a different thing. I mean, like we as humans, I think I've read a statistic. We eat so much sugar these days. It's kind of like uncomparable to what uh, the amount of sugar that we used to eat like decades ago. It's like a factor of I don't know ten or twenty. It's 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 really wild, and and our brain apparently wants that, right? You show me the ice cream, and I'm like this little monkey, and go, I want to have that ice cream. And it's very tough to resist those those urges. Whereas, with my my trading, I don't get that same satisfaction from doing a discretionary trade than I do from getting the ice cream. You know, I, I don't get like a sugar rush uh, by putting up you know a short Tesla trade just because I feel like it. Um, but I do like the ice cream, so I think it's it's wired in a different way. Yeah, I'm not sure it's the same for everybody.
2: You know, we just want to achieve good results, uh, whether it's trading or uh, diet and fitness and being healthy. Um, and then uh, I'm not sure that uh, those two subjects are compatible, but um, we could keep it going a little bit longer. I, I do think uh, I would say, though, that one thing I, that came to my mind, Niels, when you said um, if you're not going to follow your rules, then the, va- the back test may be invalid or it's more likely to be black and white in trading than other uh, aspects of life. But I would say that, um, like, I don't, I think that for me, I, I, I think, um, the, I've said on the podcast and we quoted, um, Jim Simons. And that is that, uh, it's okay, you know, at least according to the two of us, Jim Simons and me, you know, so if y'all want to argue with that, you want to argue with Jim Simons and me, go ahead. But, um, the, that if we follow our systematic approach all the time, 100% of the time, then at some point in time we say, uh-oh, some crazy stuff going on here. Let's reduce our leverage. Let's reduce our positions. We need to do something to cut back. And I think that is fine. And then you have that sort of um, in the back of your mind or you have it systematized even better. But it's not a system trade. It's not an entry and exit and a stop loss. It's um, And it's not this continual portfolio management that every day you're doing something outside of the individual trades, but it's like, okay, now is a really dangerous time and I want to cut back. And that gives you the ability uh, to not freak out and break. Oh my God, now I've got to quit trading uh, the systematic rules, but it's, but it says, no, you can come back to it at a later time. You always have this in your back pocket that if you're afraid, you're not going to stay in the game, which is the ultimate, um, You don't lose too much, so you stay in the game, and I think that that may be akin to the ice cream thing. You know, you know, if you feel if you're out with your friends, I mean, I think it's kind of crazy. I mean, as strict as I can be on diet and fitness, if I'm out with my friends and uh, you know everybody's getting ice cream or a glass of red wine, I mean, come on, right? You got to give in. It's bigger than your rules.
1: So are you thinking, when, when you say that, Jerry, uh, are you thinking that, that you know, reducing the whole portfolio? You're not thinking about picking selected trades and say, I want to get out of though. You're thinking, let me just reduce the whole portfolio risk because something completely crazy is going on. Is, is that how?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm losing too much money. It's high volatility. Uh, maybe you come to this realization that you have, you're trading too large regardless all the time. Um, yeah. And what this does is when you do this across-the-board reduction, your brain is saying, oh, okay, I can still do all the trades uh, and I'll continue to do them just at this reduced level. And um, I wouldn't, although, rule out the possibility that, um, you know, you're in this market environment. I've been in market environments before where, well, coffee, it was probably, I don't know what year, 88, 89, where I had this big coffee trade on. And it was dominating my performance. It was just crushing me every day or making a ton of money for me. So you could say to yourself, well, I'm going to make this across-the-board reduction. But it's only going to be about coffee. So if it's keeping you awake at night or if it's really playing havoc with your mind and your brain and your inability to continue to do the trade, the system trades, and you are starting thinking about picking and choosing the markets, then maybe it. I wouldn't rule out the possibility that you just got to go in and maybe take care of one or two trades to – so you can sleep at night
1: i think certainly uh from you know over the years i would say that uh, i've definitely come across people who 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 says you know uh, as kind of an, an overall risk reduction in a crazy crazy situation that's part of, of you know what they have they feel they have to do uh, also to be responsible to uh, their investors so i think that's you know so I, I, it's not the first time i've heard that um, and um, you know i don't think there is a right or wrong answer uh, in that sense um, um,
2: so yeah i mean i think it's definitely a right or wrong answer I think any time you get yourself into a situation where you're putting yourself in a possibility that you won't stay in the game, then that's the wrong answer. It may not have come out to that. You may have been the winner. Uh, you know, if you remember back, the people around Simons was saying to him, "Don't cut back," and they could have been correct, and uh, he could have been wrong. I don't remember, uh, but you know whether it was that particular situation worked out or not. I do think that. I don't want to shy away from the fact that, yeah, it's wrong. If you keep trading too large and you put yourself in a high likelihood of ruin, ruin being losing too much money of your own money or losing enough money to where your clients all leave you, then that's wrong. And I think that, um, yeah, that's that's a problem and you shouldn't get in those situations.
1: No, I I get what you're saying. I think from my perspective, I think as long as you're – performance is within expectations, even though it might be incredibly uncomfortable, but if it's within expectations, um, then I would... then in my in my opinion i would say you have to stick with the system if you're starting to lose more money than you've ever done before and 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 and, and things are crazy i think you're right then you have to, then you have, probably have to do something but it could also be a change of the system right uh, and, and we know that those decisions have to be made from time to time you you want to mod- modify your system even though i don't think any of us would advocate that you should do it because of performance but in, these things do happen um, so yeah well, I think that
2: um, I would discourage people from trading systematically and, and sort of falling in love and treating cre- treating these systems as sort of like the gospel and a religious experience. Like, I'm going to go down with the ship on on my systems. I'm going to prove to everyone that I can hold on and I'm the most disciplined person. I think, no, don't do that. And I think uh, trend following frequently shows us all the time, you know, hopefully mostly positive uh, stuff that um, Something that's never happened before is, is happening and hope most of the time we're kind of benefiting from it We've never seen zero interest zero interest rates. We've never seen moves like this or politicians like this and uh, We buy those breakouts. We hold on and um, it defies logic. and It defies history so um, It could be a negative as well though these the drawdowns and the, the volatility and uh,
3: do whatever it takes to stay in the game it's a fascinating topic, right? I mean, like Jerry says, we don't want to be murderers with our systems just for the sake of you know trading the system um, but i i've you know I thought about um, ways to to kind of like solve this conundrum and, and, you know, speaking to other firms, like how they do it, how they reduce exposure when they're down. And there are some that say, well, you know, value at risk is going to be reduced in a drawdown and other will scale positions back exponentially. The deeper the drawdown becomes and all of that. And and I kind of like I I do something like that but in a much less frequent way. In terms of like, you know, trading a different notional account size level depending on where losses are, but it's, it's not a function, it's not built into the system. But I guess to all of those um, approaches, there, there is the point that when you're down 50, 60%, uh, you're very likely to throw all of that out of the window and you will um, make a decision to probably trade smaller, hopefully, trade smaller in order to avoid ruin. And this is, I I don't think that can really be built into a system.
2: Well, I think that um, uh, it's so important to um, build that into the system. And I think we do that, because I think we're essentially doing that when we make these extreme uh, decisions to uh, trade currencies, commodities, interest rates, fixed income, and stocks, and long and short, stop losses, paying attention to trend only. And all of these things we do, which seems so unnecessary, because you just buy the index, buy the stock index. What you're in the business for a while, when you're faced with those situations where you're stressed and you're trading too large, then you sort of start trading at a more appropriate size. And so then it's very important to get all of that stuff correct. Uh, Maximum diversification, moderate leverage and risk, and daily P&L, and uh, average losses, and then when you get hit with crap and you're going to get hit with it, you're the best and you have done the best job on the planet. Then you get hit with it. Okay. I, st- I still have to make a cutback. Yeah. Yeah. You still have to make a cutback. Uh, maybe, you know, if, if it gets too crazy. Um, so I think that you want to do everything you can prior to that and then get ready. You may have to still may not be enough and rare, you know, rare cir- circumstances.
3: Yeah. I mean, the, but what, what I do is kind of like I, uh, at, at certain points in time, I will update my notional account trading level based on performance and on the way up I do it um, You know, I, I, I increase kind of like the notional lever Level not as quickly as I would reduce it on the way down, but this is kind of like I do that at points in time This is this is kind of like part of the it's not built into the system But it's part of the routine so it's it's kind of like the system, but what I don't have in the system is a rule that says this is what happens at a sixty percent drawdown because I think if I am at that level, then I will probably need to do something drastic so to me, it's pointless to to prepare in a systematic way for the seventy percent drawdown you're very True. unlikely to follow the rule yeah
1: i mean may may maybe um you know maybe this is maybe our difference of opinion on this point is also to do with um i think uh, the 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 different way we set our uh, account size i think Jerry you do it much more infrequently than than we do so for example if we're in a drawdown our positions would be adjusted accordingly meaning if the account size is uh, you know are reduced then positions will be reduced accordingly so that that could be one difference the the, the reason why i'm a bit more um not embracing this concept is also that, um, I mean, I understand that at some point maybe you say, yeah, I have to make a change. I understand, I understand that. The, the question is then, is that a temporary a temporary change or do you go back and trade the original size once you start making money? All of that stuff, it, it opens some questions about that. But if it's a permanent change, you say, yeah, I, if this was wrong, should never have traded this large. I understand that. But then again, you could kind of argue the same thing as if you have extreme profitability. Do you then go in and, and change things? And I, I'm 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 not a big fan of of making changes, uh, based on 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 these things. I I would much rather that you stick with it, so to speak, um, and um, and and not fiddle around with it. As long as I said, as long as it stays within expectations. Uh, if if you've never lost fifty percent and suddenly you're down fifty percent, I think you do need to review what you're doing. But if you're down 40% and you've been down 40% before in your trading or in your back test, then I don't think you need to, um, you know, uh, go to extremes.
2: Right. It depends upon uh, what you and your clients have bought into.
1: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And I think that's a good point. That's exactly right. I mean, the the client should get what they expect. I think that's true.
2: And it's an indication that uh, we all bought into max drawdown of 10%. And we're yeah. down thirty, you know, You're right? where <laughs> we look at my track record. I've had uh plus, I've had forty percent drawdowns almost every year. No, I'm having. I'm, we're down twenty. No, I haven't done anything. So I think, yeah, that's implicit that um you know that <clears throat> how you want to handle those two situations. I just think it's okay to sort of say, hey, you know, life sucks. I'm not perfect. These are not. Uh, I'm not gonna I like that word martyr myself on these systems um it's not um weakness to to do whatever it takes to stay alive and continue given my system and my leverage and what i've sh- have experienced in real life and in the back test and um I do everything uh, my default position is to um is to preserve capital and survive <clears throat> and hopefully that uh, won't prevent me from anytime I've done these. Cutbacks, um, and I, you know, you'd have to do them more often when you're out of line with, you know, your leverage is higher than you're comfortable with, or your clients are comfortable with. You know, you got to reduce that leverage. You can't. Uh, it doesn't work that well to have increased leverage and then make these cutbacks every six months or once a year. You know, don't do that. Um, you're interrupting the sy- the system. You're not able to trade take all the trades uh, the same way every time. And every time I've had to do that historically it's been a long time since I was out of sync with all of that um, you know I, I got I reduced my positions at the very low you know you're always doing it at the wrong time doesn't mean it's not correct it's just that you can you know you should expect bad luck whenever you don't whenever you uh, voluntarily or uh, have to or, or un- involuntarily have to do trades that are not system trades it's not going to work out in the long run for you even though when it may help you survive once or twice, and and I
1: think you're right. And I think as long as people know that this might happen, I think it's fine that you know we're being transparent. And I think that as as you said, probably the most important thing is that we we always have to live with what we do, right? So if we're clearly so uncomfortable about what's happening, and, and 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 that's not a good situation to to be in, uh, absolutely. Good good topic. Um, what else was in? As I mentioned, we have lots of questions, but I know you also had some good points from the various. Uh, uh publications that's been out in the recent weeks. so what else
2: yeah just um, maybe a couple more on this uh, my favorite of the week was this article in Bloomberg about 16 leading quants imagine the next decade in global finance which I couldn't find this article until Moritz tweeted it so thank you <laughs> and I just uh, piggybacked off of his you original. liked it I know ah God this was like uh pretty similar to hedge Nordic last week where this roundtable uh, was just so many good nuggets of wisdom, and listening to these smart people. Uh, and this was a little bit different. I don't. I'm sure these people were not in the same room discussing these topics. It was just uh, what's going to happen in the next decade uh, for quants. Um, but it was a couple of them that I thought were really interesting. Um, Cliff started off by saying, "It's always important to keep an open mind to the possibility that the world might have changed." But the opposite danger of overreacting to recent performance is at least equally important. New factors are more susceptible to data mining compared to well-known ones. So I thought, hmm, that's interesting, you know. Why is that, is, what does he mean by that? New factors are more susceptible to data mining compared to well-known ones. i Not sure I understood that, but, uh, and I'm, you know, very much in favor of using all the data, not being overly influenced or overreacting to recent performance or data or lack of trends or whatever. So I like this one.
1: Yeah, I haven't read the article. I'm, I'm definitely going to catch up on that. Um, um, but uh, no, I, I mean, I, I I don't quite understand either what he means by new factors. But we know, of course, that this factor investing, that label, it's like, crisis alpha these are labels that are relatively new in 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 our industry and uh, i'm sure there are many more factors than i can think of right now and and uh and and perhaps some of them are uh not as robust uh as as kind of the old school that uh, some of those that we really uh, rely on um so uh,
3: yeah and no, i look forward to reading that article did
1: you, did you read it moritz
3: yeah I, um i uh didn't read all of the 16, but definitely uh, definitely read the one uh, by Cliff and uh, some of the others. I, I, I agree with Jerry. I don't really know about those new factors, what he means by that. But the, the, the first thing he said about the recency bias, I mean, that's spot on. Um, and, you know, we're kind of like case in point with our trend falling performance during the past couple of years. Um, you know, the industry average hasn't been as good as it used to be. Um, but what does that mean? Does that mean that you need to stay away from trend following for all times? Not for me. For some people, it does. But it's a period where uh, it's very easy to fall into the recency bias camp and just drop your investment in trend following at a time when you may be most needed.
2: You know, I'm, I'm okay with uh, these factors. I mean, I know some of my friends, they don't like factors or this. But seeing as how time series momentum is the most popular and most respected of all the factors, then I'm 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 good. I'm down with it, and I, it just seems like it's just the way that the academics have to talk and how they approach situations uh, differently than trader types. Um, but uh, yeah, as long as the you know we get positive research papers and press on time series momentum being the most important and least understood and most perplexing, it works. We don't know why type of thing. I think that's great um another person said uh, today and into the future institutions will view their portfolios all through the lens of factors they will use factors increasingly to minimize unintended risk and maximize diversification i mean this is amazing this is exactly what i've been saying that the next phase is trend follow you know time series momentum your whole portfolio and then i just added uh throwing some commodities and fixed in- and effects as well and uh so and shorts and so this is where the world is going because it's what's next and it's what's right and it's going to make everything better once we get through this period of um, stock index cap weighted stock indexes outperforming everything then people sober up and say okay what's with these rules what's with these factors and once you um, use time series momentum and trend you can safely throw in commodities and currencies and uh shorts and um, we take over our strategy takes over you know it's going to be the typical portfolio in 20 50 100 years or something like that i don't know maybe 5 who knows yeah i mean there's no doubt that um
1: institutional investors have gravitated towards uh you know trying to explain different strategies uh and performance uh with with you know what what are the factors so to speak that drives this um I worry a little bit that sometimes this can become very academic, very theoretical um, and I think we lose some of that kind of market uh, Gefühl, to use a German word, I guess, uh, where, where, you know, there are other things that drives markets that can't always be explained uh, and can't always be put in a bucket um, and so... I think there is a risk that you become too uh, theoretical. And this this is the point that I've certainly spoken to a few allocators along uh, uh, over the last few years on the podcast about, you know, yeah, you can have a thesis, right? Uh, and you can invest according to a thesis. But what if the data, at what point, when the data doesn't support your thesis, do you change? I mean, and I, I worry that we, we, we become very... Um, it, it all becomes very theor- theoretical if we have to fit into a certain factor, uh, and and who says those factors are always right? Uh, but but I do. It's like crisis alpha. Um, it you know institutions gravitate towards towards these um, uh, themes. Um, and and maybe maybe that's a good thing um, for some strategies. That suddenly you know risk parity, you know that's a great strategy. Well, hasn't been so great lately. And I worry when correlations go back to being positive between equities and bonds, which they are for most of the time, just not the last ten years. Then risk parity might not be such a great strategy.
2: Um, so, anyways, just my. Well, I'm missing something. I, I might understanding is that uh, they've just looked at what we do and mostly just applied it to stocks of course and said hey let's call it um the momentum factor and we love it and it works and we don't always understand why so i'm like fine if that's what you know i mean it's just all good stuff from the academic community as far as trend goes but anyways um the, the last one I'll say is, this is from Marco from JP Morgan. Uh, he's sort of a doomsday type of guy, but he keeps track of quats and CTAs quite a bit, and uh, historically has been kind of uh, famous for warning about these uh, massive stock sell-offs. <clears throat> but he says, uh, quant models that are calibrated on historical data, oh, wait a second, let me back up. The investment world will become saturated with passive and quant strategies. This will increase market fragility and make it more prone to tail events. The next severe recession will put the new market structure to the stress test, and that may lead to widespread failures. Quant models that are calibrated on historical data will not be able to anticipate these events. In the aftermath of the crisis, managers will aim to introduce more human oversight and discretionary decision making in the investment process and liquidity provision. I really like that and I think that's another one of those human uh, biases that I kind of look forward to. That when we have these um, trends and these sell-offs, even if we've made money, but everybody marks to the highest NAV and so this is a really bad thing when we have these sell-offs and these uh, recessions and stocks are down, then uh, we're going to revert to um, discretion and human oversight. I'm like, perfect. Go for it. Yes, exactly. Get out of our way. Stop being so quantity and trendy. And uh, so I hope that that's the case, that in every back of everyone's mind, except the crazy CTA types, uh, you've got to have this human oversight, discretion, to prevent all of these bad things that are sort of happening from, from just following these rules.
1: Yeah, I mean I, think, uh, I mean, I think he does mention something interesting. And this is where I think we have to be careful not confusing you know, the modern-day quant world with traditional trend following, even though people say "Oh, it's quant as well. But, yeah, it might be quantitative, but I think it is different. Because I agree that I think that when the system, the next time we're going to have massive stress in the system, I do worry, uh, as, as mentioned before, that some of these newer strategies that may not have traded through some of the difficulties that we've done in the last, you know, 40, 50 years, um, and where you will be, um, you know, questioning your system, and 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 you have to make the right decision. I do think that those in in those strategies with people who may not actually have had that experience, because you can't backtest experience, in my opinion. So, I, I agree. There is definitely risks there, and there are risks that some of these quote unquote newer quant st- strategies um, may blow up, and um, and that people who are running them. Will be uh, tempted, if not forced, to make some
3: uh, overrides for sure. You cannot backtest experience like you say, Niels. Uh, but what I'd say is, you can backtest certain or, or quite a number of the strategies which investors use today. But they've been blinded by the light because they're really their data starts in the 1980s. This is when most of the academic papers in finance, you know, start to become published. You know, say beginning of the 70s, right? Um, so, all this factor research and, and all that is focusing on this marvelous time period of where we had massive economic growth and expansion and globalization and equities were, you know, mass or menos going up and yields were going down and the best thing to do is to hold a 60-40 portfolio or some sort of a risk parity portfolio and to sell volatility. And this has produced those spectacular returns. And we're like, you know, all the people, or essentially all the people, most of the people, uh, as RIAs or people trading in the markets, they are in this period where they look back to the 1980s, but not more than that. But you could run a portfolio 60-40 uh, for the last 100 years. You know, not on daily data, but you can get a basic approximation of what that would have looked like. And the picture isn't nice. The buy and hold picture is not nice in the 1920s, 1930s, right, during the, 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 the world wars, all of that. Selling volatility killed you during those time periods, for sure. But people don't want to see it. And they're not, you know, most papers don't show it to them. They focus on the last 30 or 40 years, and that produces the portfolio that is, is so nice. But trend following can also be tested in naive ways um, for the past 100 years. And it's so stable,
2: yeah, and I'm just not going to i can't say those words like I can't say um like uh like if someone said you know to a trend follower like you know you made all this money over a two year five year period, how did you crush it um you know, I'd say they would say, I followed those rules, well, you had no experience how were you how did you know to follow those rules I mean that's what trend following does. I have zero experience in fact. Sometimes the less experience you have, um, in in uh, not you know when you make make money and you have good performance without following the rules, that could condemn you for a long period of time. So, we we um, I have my friends tell me this all the time. They didn't live through 2008. These new millennials or whatever, they haven't seen blah 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 inflation like the 70s or the sell off of 2008. They don't need to. They're following the trends. The person who knows the least and has the best system and the least experience and the most diversification and the best choice of leverage, they're going to crush it. And, and this is what we do. When I first started and I did my first back test, you know, or <clears throat> went back to the 40s and 50s or whatever, 60s, I didn't have that experience. And right out of the gate, I was having all kinds of success. So, sure you were. You're trumping experience with following those rules. But you. But
1: I think you're saying the essential thing. You're following rules that, you know, obviously are adaptive, et cetera, et cetera. But going back to Moritz's point, the 60-40 portfolio doesn't look great in many periods going back 100 years. What I worry about is that actually the 60-40 portfolio, if you, do make, if you make that 50-50 and you add leverage – which should make it even worse during those periods that's what you call risk parity nowadays and that's a very popular strategy uh, uh, among certain uh, types of investors um so that that's my worry yeah. that some of these strategies that that you know has ha- have, have have added this extra leverage to them but are not necessarily based on sound principle through all different market conditions
2: In the last 10 years for sure it's been beautiful i think some of these things we can't are rely just on sort that. of random they've worked out randomly i mean we use uh, the three of us use you know risk parity you know at at entry to make sure that we sort of have the same. Mm,
1: it depends on how you define risk parity, I don't yeah. feel that we use risk parity. Oh well,
2: well yeah, because what risk, risk parity for, for me is yeah, uh, yeah. same right. risk per trade, we, but yeah, you sure. can't leave out the part that we're long and short with currencies and, exactly. and currencies and commodities as well. So that's yeah. the risk parity part. Eh. I mean, I could see how it would work. But, but uh, what do you think about me leaving out currencies and uh, commodities? Oh my God, I, and shorts. Oh, you're not in good shape there. Now, your, your plan is gonna fail. You can sort of talk about risk, the risk parity piece. And you know, another part of this re- adjusting your positions based upon volatility is sometimes uh, <clears throat> when, you know, one of, the, one of the two, the stock or the bond piece, is at an all-time high, and you've been in the trade for five years, you, the risk parity may say, hey, you know, increase your position materially, and it turns out to be right at the highs. So, so many bad things going on with this risk parity, and I think the, the readjusting the positions based on volatility might be the smallest of them all as far as overall risk management goes.
1: But and, and we have to just remember, just so there's no confusion among the audience, when I refer to risk parity, I refer to these strategies that are long only stocks and bonds, not what we do where we take the short side as well. That That is different. But if you're long only and you add leverage and you adjust you know, your bonds to your stock volatility, etc., cetera, et cetera, that kind of risk parity, which has worked beautifully in the last 10 years where the correlation between stocks and bonds has been predominantly negative, like 85% of the time it's been negative. So it's fantastic. But over 50 years, over 100 years, the correlation between stocks and bonds is predominantly positive that means they can go down at the same time and if you have leverage and they go down by a significant factor as we have seen in the past that's where i think the trouble starts
2: yeah and it's but I, mean, I think that the, the, the there's a big problem with just trading those two sectors
1: yeah yeah good stuff um were there anything more jerry you wanted to add uh, from some of those things um uh, by the way, what happened with this Zero Hitch Zero came out with an article, but I w- 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 also saw something like Zero Hedge had been banned from Twitter. Yeah, they're was
2: banned from Twitter for um, putting in a tweet the name of a Chinese scientist from the city where the um. coronavirus started, and they're like in- encouraging people to contact him. Ah, and so they okay. said that's kind of harassment and abuse.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, I think they do had a CTA article out that we probably might dive into uh soon. I know you've been tweeting uh about it this morning, Jerry. So uh maybe there's something to it. But let's let's dig into some of the questions. Let's see how far we get. Um first one uh, is from Mike. Um, who starts out by saying thanks for taking his previous question. You're very welcome. I was reading an academic paper on technical trading and currencies and found this footnote. A trend-following rule in which the investor buys more as the currency goes up and sells more as the currency goes down is a dynamic call replication strategy. As the strategy produces a synthetic currency call option, the profits from the strategy should be skewed, By comparison, the trading rules here entail a fixed position that is held until the next signal of opposite sign appears. Do you agree with this characterization that it is a dynamic call replication strategy? It appears too simplistic at first. Thank you for your thoughts. So, trend following, is this a dynamic call replication strategy if if we're trying to boil down what, what we do?
3: Uh, maybe in very, very, very loose terms, but as you know, if you wanted to replicate a call option, then you'd have to continuously trade in the underlier and trade your delta and you know through your gamma. Uh, that's that's not what trend following traders normally do, that's certainly not what I do because I'm not as continuous in my like pyramiding into trade. I mean, I, I do combine different time frames, um, sometimes they hit all in once, and then I have. No further trade that I will add. Sometimes there's a little bit of a time gap between, you know, one signal and the other. Uh, but, you know, at some point it'll stop and I'll have the full position size. And, and you know, I, I will then kind of like stop replicating the call, if you will. And the same is true for the downside if we wanted to, say, replicate the put. But then a call is kind of like, you know, you pay a premium up front in order to have the benefit of uh, getting the ride to the upside. Uh uh, none of us pays any premium up front. You know, kind of like our premium is probably going to be the losses that we make with, you know, all the 60 percent of the, the trades that don't work. But we don't we there's also an exit that we have, which a call option doesn't have. You know, you can have a call option go, you know, out of the money expires worthless, or stay in the money and it pays you the intrinsic value. But we at some point will be out of the trade and that will be uh, very unrelated exit to a call option expiration date. So that's why I say very, very loosely. Yeah, I guess you could. I mean,
1: if you just think of it conceptually, and maybe that's what Mike refers to the fact that we advocate limited loss, unlimited profit from how we do the trades with a stop and we let the winners run. I mean, since, you know, that's the, visually, hockey, the hockey that hockey looks payoff. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> visually, that looks like a call option. So I understand the. The uh, That's the why analogy. I say, it, loosely
3: it is yeah. there, yeah. Uh, but we're yeah. definitely, like replicating a call option would mean that through our trading in the underlying instrument, we're replicating the premium of the call option that has to be paid. We're not doing that.
2: And as we've said before, I think he, I got a little confused by the question, but I think he was mentioning, well, anyways, I think before we've said, um, we have these multiple entries and exits, multiple systems, look back periods, and we, it looks like we may be scaling in, and Pyramiding, But um, as far as I am know, I think the definition of pyramiding is using current open trade profit to justify, from a money management point of view, adding to the position. And I wouldn't advocate doing that. So I may have a, looking at my potential trade in a market, I might uh, want to do 20 contracts of something and then split that up into four buys of five each, uh, And some of those buys will happen, some of them may not happen, but I'm not going to increase that max number of 20 based upon having some sort of temporary open trade profit, um, if that's what he was getting at as well. I don't know. Sure,
1: sure. Well, at least there's some uh, food for thought for you, Mike. Um, Next question is from our good friend Seth one of the people who came to our live event in New York last year. So good to hear from you, Seth. Um, Seth says, I have a question that might be good to address on the podcast. Do any of you employ trend filters in your systems? For example, say you use a 100-day high breakout entry signal, but you make sure the market's overall longer-term trend is in the direction of the entry you might use something like a 50 20, sorry 50 over 200 moving average cross to confirm the entry signal thanks that's actually something i think the three of us have discussed from time to time uh, when 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 we chat about these things so um, what what are your thoughts moritz on on uh, filtering well
3: first off thanks for the question seth seth and i spoke over the phone a couple of days ago it's been good to catch up and um uh, I think it's, uh, it's, you know, using these filters is something that people should look into. Um, uh, there's, uh, you know, uh, it can be beneficial. I myself, I have to admit, I do not use it. Um, the kind of like timeframes I trade, they, you know, if the, the filter wouldn't add that much or if anything... To the way i trade so that's why i don't have it but i guess it depends on the setup and the speediness of your system that you trade and um maybe your, the quality of your entry signals can improve a bit if you have that additional filter um obviously as always uh don't add too many filters you know not filter upon filter upon filter and then it needs to be you know the macd and the rsi and this and that and the other thing uh, that will then probably lead to overfitting and too much of a reduced sample size to to get your system um in, into like a statistical framework that you can analyze but a a one simple filter like the one seth described like you have a, a breakout and it also needs to be above a moving average or a moving average crossover fine give this a go test it out
1: i think actually uh, the, the the specific one that uh, you mentioned seth here I think this is also what uh, Andreas Kleino writes about in his book uh, when he created those models that were trying to replicate uh, some of the CTAs. I actually think he did have a filter uh, that he used for that. So uh, I'm sure it's a, you know, definitely a viable uh, thing to, as you say, more to test out.
2: Yeah, I agree. I, I think these things like this, exactly what he mentioned here, work pretty well. Uh, it's two different ways of measuring trend the you know, breakouts are kind of crude and moving averages are they act a little different so combining the two i could see how that would help i think the most important thing in trading you know in general is not missing these big trends uh the computer if you try to have too many filters the computer will say wait a second wait a second you know you're not doing enough trades sample size of course uh, is a problem but also you can't filter yourself out of these big trends and a good thing about this moving average crossover combined with a breakout or something else would be that you're not going to get filtered out you'll eventually get in uh so that's critically important yes yeah and
1: and you you could run some signals with a filter some signals without a filter i mean if you want to uh, diversify and you want to make sure you you maybe you get in some of the trends uh, that might be filtered out? I don't know. Yeah, um, that's a good, but good question. Um, yeah.
2: My experience has been that we would come up with stuff like this, and we were so proud of it. And it was just amazing you know, to refine those entries or refine those exits. And uh, then there has been times where I think the end of eighteen and certainly 2008, where they just failed so miserably. And everything we knew was right about the markets and how to approach them you're right. I mean, if you if uh, that would be a situation where I would say, you know, adding these things or adding these ideas is going to improve it. But sometimes, uh, you know, don't do this all the time or, or have a system that doesn't use you know, these filters because that'll help you when uh, bad ideas or the best ideas don't always work the best. Yeah.
1: No, absolutely. Absolutely. Next question, um, we'll see. It relates to episode, uh, last week's episode, actually, episode 72. Uh, It's from Michael. Uh, Michael writes in, I'm guessing that the comparison of daily volatility mentioned in episode 72 is between a trend-following portfolio and a 60-40 portfolio. My assumption is that it would be tough to beat a combination of Uh, S&P and bonds in terms of lower daily volatility over the last five years or so. I've not verified personally, though, as I don't know any trend-following systems. What I do know is how to email questions to experienced trend followers. (laughs) Would the host be able to uh, divulge whether or not the daily volatility of a 60-40 portfolio is lower than that of the Perfect portfolio or a perfect portfolio, an exact number would not be needed. Um, a greater or less uh, than would suffice, right? Well, so great thing. I man. don't. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I actually, I don't have the number of a sixty forty portfolio. I don't know, but I, I, I can kind of guess that it's not been very volatile in the last five years for sure. I don't think that it has. Um, but do you have any? In any, and, and, and the perfect portfolio, I'm not sure whether whether you have any number for that, Jerry, where you actually do trend follow everything uh, other than what we do in our normal programs. Um, so um, how do we best answer, Michael, uh, with some confidence?
3: Well, what I say is um, he, he's right. I mean, during the last five years, just eyeballing the charts, um, the S&P's realized volatility has been kind of like at all-time lows, didn't realize a lot of volatility. Um, neither did bonds. They both were in a nice trend, and they were negatively correlated. So the resulting volatility of that combination, 60-40, is, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but definitely low. Now, we as trend followers, we can choose at what volatility we want to trade. You know, uh, We can now take the last five years' volatility of the 60-40 portfolio and scale our system in such way that it trades at that level of fall, what you'll see is that uh, we won't be able to outperform. In fact, we will substantially underperform that 60-40 portfolio um, and have larger drawdowns. This is, this is the view on the past five years.
2: That's right, because essentially um, <clears throat> those are the two best trades. <clears throat> and if you limit yourself to the two best trades, uh, then you know, that's going to outperform diversification and shorts, you know, uh, currencies and commodities and short. Heck, we even uh, shorted the bonds, or I've definitely shorted some of the individual stocks, you know, that not keeping up with the S&P uh, doing long only is highly predictable in a current, you know, what's, what's happened in stocks recently. And so uh, adding in shorts, I mean, my gosh, yeah but they just so stumble onto the two best uh, trends and say, oh, how would you compete against this? How are you going to do against the two best markets? Oh, I don't know. Let, let me check it. Look, I don't have to check it. I know how I'm going to do. I'm not going to do well. So your idea is that what? Well, uh, why Why do anything else? Seriously? Okay. So we just have a gulf here between what we all believe in and what uh, the rest of the world mostly believes in. Yeah, um, and just to insert here,
1: if anyone has a question for uh, us uh, before we continue, you just need to email them to info at uh, and we will do our best to bring your question on the next show. Now, the next one email I got uh, is really interesting, I think. Uh, it's not so much a question, but it's very kindly a comment because a couple of weeks ago, I think we... Uh, Did a little bit of a shout out to uh, the audience saying, you know, if anyone has a good explanation uh, in terms of um, trend following, how should we go about explaining it to people, um, uh, you know, let us know. And Brian took us up on that, uh, so I really appreciate this, uh, Brian, and this is what Brian wrote. On the most recent episode of Systematic Investor, you put out a call for help in explaining how trend following or how to get it into more portfolios. Uh, Years ago, I was working at an institutional consultant um, and came Across uh, this paper, market vision and investment styles: convergent versus divergent strategies. And this is by Mark Rinzimski that we often quote. And Jerry, you have him often in your Twitter feed as well as a reference. I'm really stuck. It, it really stuck with me, and after reading it, I went through the exercise of placing all my managers on a spectrum of 100% convergent, 100% divergent. The strategies we were using probably tended to be about 85% convergent. Looking at strategies with a high level of abstraction was helpful in seeing how most of the managers we had across the firm. Uh, whether it was equities, bonds, real estate, hedge funds, etc., had a lot in common. If you're trying to put together a well-diversified portfolio, it goes well beyond balancing allocations to a bunch of different asset classes. The underlying approaches to extracting returns from inside those asset classes should be balanced across the whole portfolio too. Uh, That's... How I've come to think about trend following—it's not a diversifying asset class; it's for diversifying convergent strategies across all asset classes, and I really like that uh, personally. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts?
2: I agree totally. I mean, it's what I've been saying. Um, it's not diversified systematic CTA trend following. It's a mechanism that gets all of these markets into your portfolio safely and he, you know um, he's come to the realization that uh, it's quite a bit different from uh, a stock index or being long all the time it's safety and it's diversification um, that's what we do and you know you can use it for stocks only or you can use it from you know uh, trading uh, your Big stock portfolio with trend. That's very important. That's your crisis alpha. That's how you're gonna help yourself, not by allocating a small amount to weird traders who trade commodities and go short. But um, you know, people have different constraints. Uh, can't do shorts. must do a lot of stocks and bonds. Okay, whatever, just uh, use that trend. And I meet RIAs from around the country all the time. They've been doing this for years. They allocate to Chesapeake. They have to um, Meet people where they are and give them things that they can handle, and it's stocks and bonds, and they still can get away with using some trend and protecting capital. Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, uh, just to, to uh, reiterate that, I mean, I think. It's really interesting to hear someone who have been allocating across many different types of asset classes and strategies and managers, et cetera, et cetera. But then when you look at it in a, you know, so what's the decision making? What's the kind of the the uh, strategy trying to, uh, or how is it most likely uh, going to profit from divergent episodes or from You know, convergent meaning stable. So, just maybe for people who are not familiar with this, but the convergent strategies are strategies that tend to make small profits for long periods of time and suddenly they get completely crushed because something um, extreme happens. Short volatility would be a very easy way to visualize that. Divergent strategies is kind of what we do, where we, um, you know, don't make money most of the time, but when we do, we make, we have large outside uh, profits um, because we're expecting things to change, not to stay stable. Um, so um, so I like that. I appreciate that. Any any additional thoughts?
3: Um, I think we've mentioned skew a couple of times on the podcast as well. The convergent strategies tend to have that negative skew. Jared just mentioned the word safety in relation with divergent strategies, such as, for instance, trend following. I think that's very important. But it's difficult to run them because most of the time you're wrong and you have to wait potentially for long, long times to then make that positive skew the right tail, all right, and, and, and make a bunch of money that pays for all the waiting years. So the convergence strategies are easier for the mind to follow and more dangerous for your portfolio to take in. That's, um,
2: they have said before, uh, back to Seth's question of the 50 50- By 200, the golden cross. You know, and the opposite is the death cross. uh, 50 goes below the 200. I, you know, I tweeted, and you could just do a search. You know, you'll find a lot of smart people talking, making fun of the last time the S&P 50-day moving average went below the 200. It didn't work. It hasn't worked the last four times, and that's there scientific, re- evidence-based approach. Oh, it hasn't worked the last four times, don't you feel stupid? And so this is um, what you're up against. You know, the in 2008, of course, it saved you a monster drawdown, but that's so distant in the past, and, and the market came back, so you didn't even need it then. So this is the silliness that we have to put up with.
1: Yeah, very true. Anyways, appreciate the thought. Uh, if anyone else has uh, good ways of uh, describing, visualizing uh, the the uh, trend following and the benefit of that, uh, like Dave, uh, sorry, like Brian just did. Um, do uh, do send it in to us, and we'll we'll bring it up. Um, Dave is the next. Uh, from the next uh, question uh, is from Dave. Let me get that right. Um, so um, he writes: When using multiple lookbacks in a trading system, would it be good a good practice to use the same risk per trade for all lookback periods, or could the risk parameter vary depending on the lookback length? Just curious as to what is commonly done in this regard. Um, I think this is an easy one for us
3: to to answer.
1: Um, Moritz, um, do you want to...
3: Well, the answer is, uh, yeah, could could it? And of course it could. But if you do that, then you're kind of like giving preference to one time frame, you know, uh, relative to another. Um, You know, I could put more weight onto a 250-day breakout than I do on a 100-day breakout, for instance. Um, But... I don't do that. I treat them all in the same way. And it's kind of like, you know, they need to be done in the same way or not at all. If I don't like the 80-day breakout, then okay. Rather than give it a smaller weight than the 250-day breakout, I'll just say, no, I don't try it.
1: Yeah, and I think that the the whole uh, philosophy of knowing what you don't know, I mean, I think it lends itself, itself well to basically treat everything equal, whether it's markets, whether it's timeframes. Just don't overthink it too much um, because at the end of the day, we don't know what's going to work in the future. Now, the next uh, one um, is from Johan. Uh, let me just get it up on my screen here. Uh, So Johan writes, thanks for an interesting podcast. Uh, I'm considering implementing a paper money trend following system just for fun. I'm a software developer by trade. Now to my questions. How do you decide when to trade during the day? And do you look at the order book to minimize slippage? When trading significant volume on a market, how do you split your trades? Or is that not a problem when trading futures? Who wants to go first on this?
3: Uh, so my personal portfolio, it doesn't really matter that much. I've never had that much of an issue. Um, but trading larger size for um, you know, an institution uh, with millions and millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, um, then that is a different thing. And you want to know about the liquidity of the markets that you're trading. And um, maybe you want to spread out those executions um, and not just hit them all in once we go at one point and just focus on the settlement but um you know you can either put this into your system and say you know i'm going to trade i'm going to break it up and i'm going to trade a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit a little later so you smear it out that way or you could use an algorithm um to uh to do that for you and get you in and out of the markets
2: yeah i don't it's trade um I think the most important thing is just uh when your signal gets hit and your trade gets hit uh, start the trade and get it done as quickly as possible but not too quick you know don't trade small if it's a look if it's cocoa you got to take more time if you have a lot of money in your management if it's the German boond or euro boond, you don't have to <clears throat> so it's just per market and but uh I think um speculate with your system and not with your um, execution, you know, just get it done and move on.
1: Yeah, and, and just to add to that, uh, Johan, actually if it's a long-term trend-following system, I think you could even do research that will find that even if you delayed your entry uh, execution by a day, it wouldn't make a big difference, so I don't think uh, if it's uh, something you're doing on a personal level that it's going to make any any difference uh, as, as such. Uh, next question is from Drew. Uh, Drew, he writes in from Texas. Um, so Howdy again from Texas. He writes, I'm curious uh, what your day-to-day looks like with your systems being pretty well built and reliable by now, uh, and your trading being fairly long-term. I don't, uh, I don't sense that there is a lot of activity. Uh, ac- sorry, a lot of day active daily trading. So, what are you spending the majority of your day doing? <laughs> so,
2: so I feel like I'm. That's... I feel like I'm going to be judged here. Uh, <laughs> fantasy <laughs> hockey is a big one. I mean, I'm looking at the markets daily, and I'm I'm asking my traders, "How are we going to do this trade? Is it a VWAP? Is it a market? What are you thinking?" Uh, so, you know. I'm enjoying life. I'm, I'm uh, doing some research and thinking about markets to add,
3: markets to take away. So there's always something fun to be, to be working on. I agree. Same here. I definitely do not get bored. Those markets are too interesting and developing systems is interesting. Speaking to clients is interesting, doing research, all of that. So there's really no time for boredom. Uh, I don't need to sit in front of the computer and watch the markets all day. Uh, I guess that's one of the real positive things about being a systems trader. You can uh, you know, step away from the markets and uh, focus your time and energy on something else.
1: Absolutely, and I also think that there is obviously a difference you need to be aware of, uh, Drew, in terms of uh, our our day to day things. I mean, uh, Jerry's situation uh, compared to Moritz and I. We, you know, we we have full time jobs, so uh, so we do uh, other things. But I think it can it depends if you're doing it uh, for yourself and if it's a profitable system, and you can, uh, you know, if that's your if that's your main source of income, you're you're right to some extent. It gives you a lot of freedom. I think that's why uh, some people gravitate towards this kind of uh, style of trading, because it, it should not take that long. Um, however, I think research is something that should always be uh, something you do. Uh, maybe not all the day, but it's it's important. So, uh, so yeah, but good question. We have another question here uh, from another Johan. Uh, and uh, so uh, Johan writes in, um, he writes, if markets trend for 40 percent of the time and moves in ranges 60 percent of the time why not combine a range trading strategy with your trend following strategy this way those many small losses can be offset by the profits of the range trading strategy uh buying support and selling resistance this should be diversifying across strategies in order to improve performance and decrease drawdowns um so let me take a stab at this first, uh, Johan, because I think actually I also replied to you by email on this. Um, I mean, there is no doubt you can do whatever you want. I think that if you if you want to have the profile of a trend follower and that's what your clients are buying and they rely on you to be fully long or fully short uh, when the big breakouts happen, I don't necessarily think it's a good idea to try and confuse by adding other types of strategies to your to your program, um, so 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 from that uh, point of view, um, I think most trend followers don't, uh, you know, do that. Uh, you could then argue that okay, maybe you have a very short time frame um, that could. Um, make use of short term corrections i wouldn't call it range trading but different time frames sure could could add some diversification to that but but i do think that where uh, certainly in the email i sent you um where where there is a uh, shouldn't be any confusion and that is during trending behavior where you want to be either long or short there's a lot of noise so if you're trying to be too clever about it and, and having quote-unquote range trading strategies as well, they're going to suffer a lot, I think, during those uh, range trade, uh, Sorry, during those trending periods because a trend is not in a straight line. There's going to be lots of corrections along the way and they may look like range trading for, for a range trading system and get you stopped in and out. Um, and, and so, um, I mean... You obviously need to, to, if you're doing it for yourself, you should test whether it works or not. But if you're looking for a manager, I think you'll find people who, um, you know, probably are more pure uh, in terms of being just trend. Um, Unless they are more multi-strategy, of course, then I'm not sure they would do range trading strategies per se, but they would do other
2: types of strategies. So.
1: What are your thoughts, uh, Jerry? I think Moritz stepped away or at least is...
2: I don't know how to put that together because it seems to me that, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was just, I think when you do the back test, uh, the, the trend following is so overwhelmingly better than everything else. Mm. And I, my, my attitude was, ah, why bother? And I think sometimes, especially with uh, range, um, it sort of nets itself out to where all you're really doing is just trading your long-term trend following smaller. I think adding other types of strategies to uh, trend, like a uh, carry trade or shorter term trading or pattern recognition, they probably have a tendency to be, <clears throat> you're doing trades at different times. But uh, when I think about range, I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna buy the breakout and then I'm gonna sell the breakout at the same time. Eh, I don't know how it works, but, uh, too old. Right, because you want to get so if exactly so so
1: you know I think what what uh, what Johan is saying is that if you have a let's just say the market moves down and we're waiting for the breakout so that we would potentially sell what what Johan is saying well you know just before it breaks out you could say that it has maybe some support and you're going to try and buy that but but you're absolutely right essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to buy something that you actually think you're going to get stopped out straight away in reverse and go short so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you can be too clever with these things, Johan. I think the concept of what you're saying, I can understand why you say it's, uh, it. It makes sense to do, but I think if you start testing it, it's it's not that easy to to make that that combination profitable uh, as such. But maybe combining shorter-term trade uh, trend following. So obviously, short-term managers we know that you know, they trade very differently to, to what we do and, and they obviously can find periods of profitability where we won't uh, be profitable for sure. Probably like last week. I mean, last week, I'm sure some of the short-term traders had a ball uh, without a doubt while we were giving back profits from longer-term trends. So combining things is is not necessarily a bad idea. I still think you'll find that if you look in the very long term, you st- you'll still find medium to long-term trend followers outperform um, but they don't outperform all the time. Uh, that, that we know. So uh, let's jump to the next question. Uh, this is from Paul. Um, Paul asks, when backtesting in the futures world, do you guys include quote-unquote debt markets in your analysis, like pork bellies, for example? I tend to include it in my backtesting And trade stats, even though the market no longer exists. Curious to know how you guys approach this. Similarly, do you ever backfill futures data with cash price to provide an indication of historical performance and increase sample size? Um, And then, for example, he mentions that the SGX iron ore futures since inception is 2013, but cash data goes back at least another decade so does it make sense to backfill the futures uh data with cash to get a longer um backtest period
2: i love that idea i like where he's going he's just um doing everything he can to get more sample size and include markets that don't exist that's perfect i I like it um then um add some stocks in there even though you're not going to trade them you know how about that and so add some markets in there that you are not going to trade, but you're getting a better sense of what the system can do and can't do um <clears throat> uh, one thing that came in popped into my head is that be careful when you um i don't know you doing things like uh adding in too many stocks, so then the stocks start to dominate your back test and or too many bonds or things like that, so you gotta be careful with um what you're looking at and the best market out there at some point in time has been crude, and if you throw in heating oil and unleaded and Brent and gas oil, well, you just you know now you got six different markets that you think you've got. Uh, it's one, it's one market basically, and you think it's six. So, a lot of pitfalls, things to to worry about when you do the back testing. But I like that philosophy of um, using more data rather than less.
1: Yeah, I kind of also I get. You know, I, I kind of the, the same emotion like you were saying. Yeah, this this is this is interesting. On the other hand, I also know that we often say, you know, test what you trade and and trade what you test. And I wonder if we are trying to establish some kind of universal parameters to trade. Uh, whether including markets that we are not going to trade anyways uh, in that calculation is such a good idea. Um, so I can kind of see it from both sides. Uh, to be to be frank.
2: Well, I mean, what I'm going to trade is the system. So I'm getting a better indication of my system. I might not trade all of those markets, but I think that's good knowledge to have. And I'm not, uh, you know, me, I'm not going to pay too much attention to the historical NAV, the back test, the max drawdown and things like that. I'm going to discount that a little bit. I'm adding markets all the time. Some of the markets have gone away. Um, The future is going to look much different Maybe the average trade, average winner, average loser, win percentage will be stable. And that's, I'm going to get more information about those three things by looking at markets that I might not even trade.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that completely. So thanks for that question, uh, Paul. Uh, last question today. Let me see if I can bring it up. Here we are. Short question from Singh. In this episode, I think it must be last week's episode, uh, there were multiple references to short, medium, and long-term trend-following systems. My question, is, my question is, how do you define these timeframes? So we may actually have different uh, views on that, Jerry. So i going to come to you first just to, to ask you, um, how, when you think about short, medium, and long-term, do you have any kind of clear definition of that um, that you think of?
2: Well, I don't like to use those terms when I'm trying to Help uh, clients understand what's what's happening, so what I do is I just tell people um the look back period and no and uh even more even better than that is average holding period so i'll tell my I, I don't because everyone has a different opinion of medium long term and i don't trust medium term uh I think people like to say medium i mean medium i mean who can argue with medium you know it's just in that place where you just can't argue with it. Oh, I'm medium. I'm in the middle. I'm not radical. And so, oh, that's just so wonderful. So I try to avoid terms like that and just sort of say, you know, I hold uh, my average holding period is X, and people are like, whoa, you were really long-term. <laughs> so it's all kind of relative to other managers, or um, people are often shocked when I tell them my average holding period is what it is. Um, so it's no S- doubt. Uh, so think, So using that
1: measure right average holding period where do you draw the line then i mean a short-term trader is that someone who holds the average trade for less than a week less than two days less than a month i mean what what just to maybe answer uh, yeah i don't know i think that's i've heard (laughs)
2: that four days two weeks um but personally i would think that um three months is pretty short term uh (laughs) it always baffles me because when i do my own research and back testing i can't Find profitable systems that uh, have short, you know, the you know, like um, three-month holding periods and two-week holding periods. But I think that that's just what most people are looking for uh, to do research. We are a research firm. Uh, we are doing back testing and research all the time, as the markets are always changing, and we have to evolve. Said never said by me. And so, I l- listen at this and I wonder, and I'm like, congratulations if you're able to trade shorter term, a look back period that's less than um, six months or nine months, 12 months even, uh, good for you. I, I can't really comment on, on, on those type of systems. I can't get them to make m- profits.
1: Yeah, and I think also to to add to that thing is that I think these terms change uh, all the time. I mean, certainly I remember when, when I started out in this industry, short term was different to what it is today because... Back then, we weren't trading intraday stuff. Uh, you know, you, you you kind of couldn't. You didn't have the technology to do so. Today, there's so much, you know, high frequency, intraday, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I think these uh, these things are very difficult to, uh, to uh, have a clear opinion about. But I agree with Jerry. Average holding period is not a bad way to look at it. And then you can say, well, anything below, you know, two weeks is certainly short term. Uh, in in some sense, and and people who are in the high frequency or intraday trading, they think that's an eternity uh, to hold a, a position. So I don't think there is a clear answer to that. Uh, in in my own opinion, I think things that are one or two weeks, I think that's generally short term. To to you know how I think about it, um, you know long term um, for me is probably more than six months on average. Then you're certainly in the longer term camp. And then you have this gray area in the middle, which is going to be probably labeled medium term, but that has such a wide range that it's neither here nor there, frankly. So, so I kind of get Jerry's sentiment about, um, you know, medium term can be very confusing uh, as, as a term. Um, I think the best thing is just however you feel about it. It doesn't have to be fit in a box or be labeled um, as such. Uh, I don't think it really matters. People will have their own... Opinion based on when you tell them, oh, my holding period is sixty-nine days on average. Well, then they're going to think about it the way they they want to think about it. Yeah, um, I'll just run through the numbers. Uh, these are not month-end numbers, I'm afraid, because. Uh, the data for Friday is not in yet uh, for these indices, uh, so the numbers I'm going to quote now is as of Thursday, and I think Friday was not a good day for our industry. That's my sense. So don't uh, don't think about these numbers as this is the final for January. But anyways, the B top fifty as of Thursday was up zero point eight percent. The SOCGEN uh, CT index was up one point six four percent. The SockGen Trend Index up 2.03% and the SockGen Short-Term Traders Index up 2.5%. And the Bridge Alternatives, which I think might be as of Wednesday when I looked at the numbers, but it could be Thursday, was up 0.52%. What is interesting and not surprising, I think, is that the SockGen Short-Term Traders Index... It has come out of the gate for 2020 uh, quite nicely. They didn't do so well last year. They've come out better this year in January. And and I think a period like this where you have some reversals, that's exactly where they should be excelling compared to uh, what we do in the uh, longer-term trend-following space. So not surprising to see uh, these numbers uh, so far this year. Um, Any final thoughts, Uh, Jerry, you want to... Bring up?
2: Oh, wow! I don't think so. I, th- I think we <clears throat> hit some good. Uh, I'm I'm intrigued by um, the one question we had about uh, how to describe what we do and how to. So I think I uh, would like to hear more good suggestions. Maybe mm-hmm. questions are good, but suggestions on way to talk about things and make things better. Let's crowdsource uh, th- topics and th- in ways we can explain things better. Yeah uh, I just leave it to the three of us.
1: Yeah, no, I like that thought. I mean, I think having spent now a week uh, at these conferences and, and and hearing people talk about trend and other strategies, I mean, I think that uh, if coming up with a great narrative for, for what we do, but also why... To ex- help explain why people need it in their portfolios, uh, like uh, we saw earlier from from Brian today, which I thought was a great uh, way of doing it. But let's let's think about other ways that will uh, appeal to investors, so we can get more people to. Uh, um, take the brave step of including a little bit of trend in their portfolio. Not too small though. Not not a 1% or 2%. Let's make it more 15-20% just to make an impact. Uh, But um, that would be great. So please send those uh, suggestions to info at toptradersonplot.com And um, yeah, let's wrap it up for this week. Um, Thanks for joining from Jerry, Moritz, and me. Um, Thanks for spending part of your day with us. We love the loyalty that all of you show us every week and we look forward to being back with you in a week's time. And in the meantime,
0: have a great week.